0: Well, traditionally, the second Sunday of Advent, and this isn't Sunday, this is Saturday, so let's call it the second weekend of, of Advent, is uh, is given to the focus on hope. And um, we thought in light of the times that it would be appropriate for us to, to follow the tradition that the church has established for the last, I don't know, few centuries, and to focus on, on hope. But I will say from the outset that the word hope it seems to me so cliche and so tied to Christmas that Oftentimes we're so familiar with the idea that we just kind of skate over the top of it without stopping to really think about what it is. And the truth of the matter is, from my perspective, is that hope is one of the most powerful, one of the most profound things that we have in life. And I think if you were to look at the uh, root and at the source of all your decisions and everything you do, you'll find and you'll discover that there's hope driving it. Now, it may be hope in the wrong things, but... I think you'll find that hope generates and drives us to decide, drives our, our, um, our lives, what we're looking for, what we're going for. That's, that's what hope does. I reflect even on my own life and think about how hope works, and I realize that it is at the root of pretty much everything, what I'm hoping for. Uh, in the big things as well as the small things, um, the joyful things as well as the not-so-joyful, painful things. One of the painful things that the Lord in his providence has given me, the malady, everybody has their different physical issues, but I struggle with migraine headaches. My grandfather struggled with them and I struggle with them. And I'm not talking about your small M-I-G-R-A-I-N-E headaches there. We're talking mega headaches. And fortunately, I get them um, once to twice a year. But it comes out of nowhere and I know it's coming because I start to see spots. And a few minutes after the spots start, I lose peripheral vision. And then I begin to get numbness in my hands. And that's, 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 that's how it starts. And I know that I have about an hour from that point when I first see the spots and lines in Technicolor that I have about an hour to get into the darkest, most quietest room that I can find. And so usually that's my house. I go home and I walk in the front door and my wife just has to look at me one time and go, uh-oh, you got one of the headaches. It's like, yep, I do. So I go upstairs, I go into my room, I shut the shades, I shut the door, and I pull back the blankets on my bed, and I curl up in a position and search and fight and scratch for the place that affords me the least amount of pain. Um, It's amazing what fluffing like an inch of pillow and turning your head slightly and finding that place where it's not quite as painful will do um, for a migraine headache. Now, I have tried um, pretty much everything that you can possibly think of. I've tried Imatrex and Maxalt and exerts and a host of other things and all it can do is take the edge off. I know that I have to find that little place and just lay there. It's too painful to sleep, so I can't go to sleep, and it's too painful to really think, so you're just laying there. And and it's at that particular time, the only thing that really kind of gets me through those is to know that in four or five hours it's going to be over. And I tell myself over and over, it's going to be over, it's going to be over as you're just laying there trying not to wiggle. And if you wiggle too much, well then the nausea kind of overflows and you get sick. So that, that, for me, is like hope drives me through that migraine, even though it's only four or five hours. And I wonder sometimes how people in the church, many of whom struggle with chronic pain that's 24-7. It's not just a four- or five-hour headache. And by the way, I would gladly take a root canal from a dentist any day over at my headaches. Um, but I'll tell you, people who do that chronic pain and they have 24-7 and they see no relief in sight, I wonder sometimes how you do it. But I'd venture to guess, in fact, I would argue in the end, the reason that you continue on is because there's something you're hoping in. And that's that's the power of, of hope. Um, regardless of what that object is, it's the power of hope in, in life. I think this last election was a testament to the power of hope. You know, the posters that read, A New Hope. And that was the campaign slogan, right, of uh, Senator Obama, the, A New Hope. And I think in large part, one of the reasons people were compelled to go to the polls and vote the way they did is because they were hoping for something different. Hoping to be um, delivered from the crisis that we're in. I mean, most of you know that. That's, it's, it's hope that drove them to the polls to vote the way they did. Now, whether or not that was a misplaced hope, I'll leave that for you to decide, and history to decide. But it shows the power of hope. It operates every day in society in the little things and the big things. That's, that's what hope does. It drives us. Um, and that's why it's so important in the this, in this Scripture. And just to be clear, One of the reasons, I think, that hope is so powerful is because it is a unique joining together of two powerful qualities in the human spirit. One is faith, and the other one is desire. One does not hope for something that you don't believe is possible. You simply don't. You have a young man who's in search of a bride, scours the earth looking for her. Why? Because he believes she's out there. Or he believes she's possibly out there. Without the belief that it's even possible, there is no hope. So hope has to have this faith component in it. Otherwise, it's not hope. But it also has this desire component to it, something you want, something that you don't have. Um, Same illustration, the young man scouring the earth for his bride because he wants her. No one has has hope for or a desire for a headache or a root canal. Um, You desire relief from pain or you desire... Um, the wife of your dreams. I mean, it's it's this unique joining together of faith that it's possible and desire for something, a better tomorrow or some future that you don't yet have. That's the essence of hope. It's faith wedded with desire wanting something that you don't have. That's the nature of hope. And it lives and breathes in every one of us. And it, it, it catalyzes what we do, what we decide, and how we live. And the question for us is, what is the hope driving our lives? Is it... The hope that's two years out? Is it a financial, economic upturn? Is that what we're hoping for? Is it we're hoping for a wife or a kid or kids, a family, a car, a bigger house? What is it that we're hoping for that's driving our lives? Because that will tell us in the end who we're worshiping. And um, and in the end will show us whether or not we're driven by the right thing. Because in the Scripture there is given to us a hope that kind of stands beyond and larger than the horizons of our own physical life, that is supposed to be compelling to life, compelling to live, and that's what Paul's getting at in Romans chapter five: is this hope that was given to us, brought to us at Christmas, and what it is, and and um, and how it grows, and its quality. That's what he talks about here in Romans chapter five. And it's kind of the subject of of this text, as I said. And I want us to hope. I want us to uh, live and breathe in it for a moment. And and I pray by the end, maybe you'll find your your hope energized, and you'll find yourself more joyful, and you'll realize that times aren't as dark as they seem. And you'll leave here in a spirit of, of worship. This is what Paul writes about hope. Paul, an Apostle Paul, he wrote this little letter here, or it's actually quite a large letter. To the church that was living in Rome, and keep in mind the context in which he is writing, the people are living underneath the darkness of a pagan structure. Um, Not too friendly to Christianity, so it is a time of crisis for the church here. And in the context of the life in which they were living in pagan Rome, he writes about hope. This is what he says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith whom He has given to us. Those are some profoundly amazing words. But I want you to notice that Paul talks about hope in verses 2, 3, and 4, and 5. And it's predicated upon or based on verse 1 and the first half of verse 2, which talks about Jesus. That is what Jesus has done in coming, being born and living and dying and rising again, As He offers to all who believe justification, verse 1, That is, we have been justified, that sin is taken away, and the perfection of Jesus is given to us, that we now have peace with God through Him. Namely, that things are okay between me and God. I no longer have to fear judgment any longer. We're at peace. And then free access to His grace by faith. So you see, Christ offers us, and the reason He came to offer us, justification. He rid the sin from us, and and also peace and, and, of course, free access to God's grace to live. So the hope of verses two and a half and following is set firmly on the foundation of Christ and what He's done. It's the foundation of the house of hope. And if you don't have the foundation and there's no relationship and there's no justification, peace, then you really can't grasp this hope. This hope is based on uh, the fact that someone has recognized huh. Christ provided peace for me, provided a way out, and provided access to God's throne. And once that's faced there, then Paul then goes on and says, Now this is the hope we have on that foundation. Verse two and a half. (laughs) That's halfway through. He says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. First thing he points out to us in regards to hope is that it is centered on the glory of God Himself. It is the focal point of biblical hope is God Himself. That means that hope, true hope, is not fundamentally or ultimately centered on seeing loved ones who have passed away, though that will be a great thing, or that you will receive some kind of a paradise environment in which people are waving you with fans and you have no more tears, although there will be a paradise, no no doubt. I don't think with fans, people fanning you, but at any rate, the centerpiece of the Scripture is ultimately the hope is found in the glory of God. Which I think and I believe based on other texts means the beholding of it, seeing it, enjoying it, and even sharing in it. A couple chapters later, Paul would say an amazing statement which is um, I don't fully understand. But he says this in chapter 8, verse 17, when he says, Now if we are children and we are heirs, Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I mean, people have shared some wonderful things with me. And I appreciate it and it's helped me. It shows me their benevolence, their friendship, their love. I had somebody who had compassion on me. They know I drive a gas-guzzling Bronco. And back when the gas was four bucks a gallon, they said, hey, you can drive our." cars, to get better gas mileage. It's a minivan and a Corolla. Not exactly manly vehicles like a Bronco, but I was extremely thankful for being able to do that. They shared their possessions with me. They have shared homes with me and shared food with me. And the text here tells us that that God in the end will share His glory with us. That means that He will share His beauty with us. He'll share his perfections with us. He'll share his wisdom with us and his knowledge with us, his presence with us. It's it's the culmination of of, of everything that we were made to be and made to enjoy is, is the presence of God. And he is willing to share it with us. And for Paul, that wasn't simply a, a theological truth to assent and affirm. It was a reality in his life that he looked for with all of his heart. And God is going to share his glory with me. And, Shares God's just pretty amazing when you think about it. That is the, that is the goal, that is the goal of biblical hope. It's the glory of God, and Paul goes on to well, he doesn't go on to say he says that I rejoice, and actually he doesn't say I rejoice, we rejoice. In other words, this wasn't just a concept for Paul; it was a comfort for us, for the church. We rejoice, and the word translated rejoice normally is translated boast. If you look at it elsewhere in the New Testament, it's the word that means to boast or to brag. And some translations reflect that. Which means the idea is that he boasts about it. Not out of arrogance, but out of glad confidence. It's like this is where I'm headed. This, it's a kind of boast that someone would have when they, they get their plane tickets to Hawaii and they're telling their friends, I got the plane tickets to Hawaii. Or somebody who has never been on a cruise who's been given tickets to the Mediterranean to go 12 days and see Rome and Naples and Athens and, and Ephesus. I got tickets! This is where we're headed. You know? it's a, It's a way of... Gladly expressing and boasting, not out of arrogance, but of excitement as to what you have. That's what we saying. We rejoice. It's like I got tickets, but it's not. I got tickets to why? It's like I got tickets to see, behold, and share in the glory of God. That's that's what it was. It's the hope. That's what Christ came at Christmas to do. Is to offer that to us. That end point. That hope. And I know that for many of us, that might not be too exciting. And perhaps it's because we don't know the tickets we have. Because Jesus, of course, purchased them with the life in His blood. And He's offered them to us. And many of us stick them in the back pocket. We don't even know we have them. But they're there and they're real. And the place is real. It's more sure and firm than the floor that I'm standing on or you're standing on. We have tickets. Perhaps one of the reasons we don't realize what we have is because we're so consumed with the presents that are near to us right around here. It's like children at Christmas, you know, they sit in the middle of the presents and, and that's all they can see. If the house could be burning down and they wouldn't notice, mine wouldn't, they'd burn up in the house because the presents. And that oftentimes is the effect that the life in which we live has on us. It either clouds us with the pain or it absorbs us in the wonders of it. And we can't raise our eyes up to see something that's far better which is the glory of God. And yet Paul maintained that that that, that aim, that goal, that's where I'm headed. That's the, that's the goal of hope, is, is the glory of God. But, he also talks about how hope grows. He says this in verse 3. So the goal of hope is the glory of God. And here's how it grows. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Again, hope is the center of these three verses. But you back up to verse three. And you wonder, what in the world, if you were reading this for the first time, you had no idea about the rest of what Paul has written in the New Testament. You'd go, what in the world is he talking about? Because he says, not only so, but we also rejoice. It's the same word to brag or boast confidently and boldly. We rejoice in our sufferings. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, again, the first one I can understand. I'm rejoicing over the glory of the hope of the glory of God. I got the tickets, but can you imagine someone running into the ER and saying, I got a broken leg? Or running to your therapist or to your counselor and saying, I have mental, emotional pain. You'd think you're just a couple cards shy of a full deck, maybe a lot of cards shy of a full deck. We'd commit them to a psychiatric ward. And Paul's, though saying, we rejoice. There's that same intense, confident joy in suffering and afflictions. Did he get kicked in the head by a camel? Did he get stoned maybe one too many times? No, of course not. Paul's rejoicing in sufferings isn't in the pain itself. It's that he understands what it produces. And this has a perspective for us, I I believe, when he says again, we, us, church, also rejoice in our sufferings because, and here's the reason why, We know. That's perspective. He knows something. He sees affliction and turbulence and tribulation in his life from a particular angle. It's a perspective. And this is what it is. We know that suffering produces something. Perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character, again, strengthens and produces hope. He has this perspective on affliction and suffering and pain that is very different than our day. Most of us want to run from it. He's able to rejoice in it because He recognizes what it does. Now I'll tell you, I try to to keep in shape by running. I don't like running. My dad was a runner. Ran marathons, half marathons. And um, I have always detested running but I still run three, four times a week. You know why? Because I know what it does. I know what it does for my body. So even though I don't enjoy running, I enjoy what it produces. And that's precisely what Paul has in mind. Is that, he says, the affliction, pain, that becomes the tool by which you learn perseverance. Your, your mushy, out-of-shape, flabby spirit is turned to cast iron through this thing we call suffering. It's no different than it is with our physical bodies. Most of us here couldn't just go out and run a marathon. Maybe one or two of us could, not me. And the reason why? Your body doesn't have the endurance. You go out and you start running 9, 10, 15 miles a day, put on the mileage, and you, through the burning and the pain and the fatigue of your muscles, start training your muscles. You give it enough time and enough training and enough endurance, and you will find that you would be able to persevere. It provides this perseverance for us. It builds that into our souls. And you want to be a person who perseveres? Then you have to accept the fact that suffering is one of the tools that gets us to that point. And then the perseverance then produces character. And that stands to reason too. Because the more you do something, whether it's loving somebody or or an act of kindness or obedience, the more you discipline yourself to persevere in that thing, the more you become like that thing. The more you set a pattern in your life, the more you become that. That it, it becomes to form who you are. By persevering in a particular direction. In this case, in the direction that Jesus has for us. You continue to persevere, persevere, and then it shapes your character. And afflictions actually reveal, on the one hand, what's in us, both the good and the bad, but it also refines that. That's that's, that's what it does. That's why um, if you really want to see what somebody's really like, put them in a pressure situation. You know, I think... <laughs> We should, instead of, in in premarital counseling, what we should really do is have a couple go into a really tense environment where there's really hot, really smelly, um, where they're forced to deal with a bad situation, and then see how they act. Is he serving when things are bad, or is he serving when things are good? You know, my father was a pretty smart man. He told me, he said, listen, anybody who you want to marry, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to let me take them cross-country skiing. Yeah. Uh, Cross-country skiing, you know. And, um,. Hard work, and if you don't know how to do it, it's easy to fall. And I remember one poor gal brought home, and my dad said, "I'm taking her cross-country skiing." And she went cross-country skiing. She gave it an hour. She had she fell so many times. She finally had had enough. She took off the skis and she stomped back to the car, madder than wet hen. And she is not now my wife. (laughs) Uh, It just proved what was on the inside. You know, I'll tell you. Sadly enough, I have been on many a basketball courts. And softball fields where men who come on Sunday well-dressed and worshiping the Lord seeming so nice all of a sudden revert to this kind of pagan swearing sailor uh, kind of uh, in the heat of competition. Because that's when it comes out who you are. It's when you really know what you believe in who you are. And then you realize, okay, Lord, you have a lot of work to do on me. And then in that context, you begin to pray and to then grow, and your character grows in that context. And then the last step, of course, what Paul's really getting to is that affliction, it not only builds perseverance, and that perseverance, that character that we so desperately long for, but in that context, it strengthens our hope for the glory of God. That's what it does. That's how it works. That's how it functions. If you can grab that perspective... Imagine if most of us had that perspective now and saw that our own afflictions could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be relational, and we saw them in the perspective as like, God's doing something. Things would be different. If instead of seeing that glass half empty all the time, I wish I wasn't so fatigued. I wish my knees worked better, my hips worked better, or you know, I didn't have migraines. Imagine if we saw all the time the glass is overflowing because God is blessing in those times and doing things in us that He wouldn't do in other ways. Imagine if you saw two people in the foyer and the one asks the other, and this is typically how we do it as Christians, so how are you today? And the other person says, fine, doing great, when they're really not doing great. And then you have those occasions where someone says, hey, how are you doing? And the person actually answers honestly and says, I am actually had a terrible day. Terrible week. You know, my wife just had a breast biopsy. We don't know what it's, whether it's coming back positive or negative. My middle child has just totally walked away from the Lord, and I'm just difficult times. Now, how do we typically respond? You kind of want to shut down the conversation. <laughs> I'll pray for you, and then you leave, because it's uncomfortable. Can you imagine if someone responded and said, wow, not insensitively, but said, wow, God, that's deeply at work in your life. Different perspective. Totally different perspective. But that's precisely his perspective. It's in the pain is hidden and shrouded the blessing of change. And I can't think, I should say this, that it is potential. I mean, I look at the Scripture and these kind, adversity and affliction can either fracture you or it can form you. Because you find in the Scripture places like Exodus where the people of Israel are out wandering in the wilderness. They're out in the desert for crying out loud. And God's providing for them, but they don't want manna. They want meat. And so, you know, they're complaining. They're in inner affliction. They begin to complain. And as a result, the Lord judges them. That is to say, they didn't see it through the eyes of faith that God is working. Rather, they doubted the goodness of God and the what God had provided, and as a result, were judged. So you can deal with affliction in your life, whatever that might be. It could be that you just had really bad history. And you're deeply pained by your bad history. You have a choice to make as to how you're going to see it. You can either choose to see it from the angle of doubt, in which case the glass is half empty, or you can see it from the perspective of faith and recognize God is at work and God is doing things in me that He are deep and profound. He is changing my spirit into this cast iron spirit and He is He is molding my character and He is, he is strengthening my hope. That allows a person to have joy in a time of darkness and affliction. And I can't think of a more relevant truth for our time than that truth. I happen to believe that God controls the universe and everything in it, including the economy. And I hope we and I see the opportunity in these days, rich opportunity, to see God work in our souls and in our church. That's, that's seeing things through the eyes of faith. It's not by accident things are the way they are. No, it's by design. And we can either doubt and run, or we can see it with faith recognize God is deeply at work. And that, that perspective is what enabled Paul to say, I, I rejoice in sufferings. It just went, goes to show he knew what was really important. And what was important was not maintaining comfort, but the formation of the soul. And if we had that same value, it's like, listen, I want to be Christ-like more than I want to be comfortable. Then we would, and we recognize that God works in affliction, then I think we'd have a lot more joy in that. In the life in which we live, and, and less, uh, less complaining and less grumbling, a lot more gratitude, and a lot more hope. So Paul sets out the goal of hope, which is the glory of God, growth of hope in adversity. Now, Right now, brothers, if I could just say, the days in which we live are tremendous days. They are tough days, but they're days rich with opportunities. See growth in our lives in one another. And I, I hope we can grab that from Paul here. There's one last thing he says about that hope, and that is that the hope never disappoints. That's what he says in verse 5. The hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Hope that doesn't disappoint, doesn't let us down. When I, you know, when I, I, I think about that verse and it says, I hope it doesn't disappoint. You know what I think about? I think about going to a restaurant and opening up a menu. And on that menu, there are these gorgeous dishes. Shrimp, scampi, and a big old piece of steak all nestled in a nice bed of lettuce. And it looks awesome. Like You're thinking, that has got to be the best meal I've ever seen. And you ask for it. And then they bring it. And it doesn't look anything like the menu. And you're completely disappointed. It's like the old commercial, you know? They bring the burger that looks like one thing on the picture, and they bring it, and you open up the bun and you say, where's the what? (laughs) Where's the beef? It's disappointing when you have something that you've been looking forward to and you get there and you realize it wasn't what you thought it was. And let's face it, most of what life is, you get there and you have high hopes for it, and you get there and, wow, it's not that exciting. Most of the presents we give our kids that they're going to be so excited about and pining away for, they have been pining away for months, they're going to get them, they're going to open them, the mystery is going to be gone, they're going to play with them for a month, and they're going to throw them in the boring pile. But it's what Paul says here is is that the hope that we have, it will not disappoint. That is, I think, the reverse. It is going to go beyond every expectation. That every moment that that hope is experienced when it comes, It will blow our minds. There will be no such thing as familiarity. There will be no such thing as boredom. It will ever be new, ever be mysterious and ever wonderful, and we will never, ever, ever get bored of it. It will never disappoint us. And the reason why, he says, because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given. When it comes to the love of God, We see it in the cross, but we come to feel and understand it in the subjective parts of our hearts when the Holy Spirit comes in and floods us with it so we know the inner sense that God loves me. And it's knowing how much God loves me that I know that He will never allow the hope to disappoint. Like a father at Christmas wanting to give his kid a a, a present doesn't want to disappoint his, his, his kid. Sometimes in this particular day and age, we should. But... The God who loves us so deeply will never disappoint us with hope. It's like like there's a big Christmas day coming. There already has been one when it started, but a big Christmas day in which our Father's like, you just just wait. You just wait. You just set your sights on on Christmas. Because that Christmas day is going to come and there's going to be this box. And inside it's going to be something of immeasurable mystery. And you're going to get it. Because if there's one thing I know about the God of Scripture... He always exceeds the expectations of His people. God promises Abraham that he'd be a father of a child. And we find by the time we get to the end of the Bible, he is a father of nations. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation are now brought into Him and they call Abraham father by faith because they've been included into the promises. God promised the people of Israel this this piece of land over in the Middle East by the time you get to the end of the Bible, it's not just the land in the Middle East that's given to him, it is the entirety of the heavens and the earth that's given to God's people. As God's promises, the hope, and it actually comes, is far better than we can ever imagine. Or we think about God saying, I promise that I will bring you a deliverer, a messiah. Well, he didn't just give us a man. He he came himself, always exceeding the expectations of his people, and that's precisely Paul's point. Whatever you think it is, and there are descriptions of it, whatever you think it is, maximize it or multiply it by a billion, and then you'll start to be in the ballpark. Reminds me of, 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 of Pilgrim's Progress. Have you ever seen Pilgrim's Progress or seen it, read it? If you haven't, you need to read it. It's, it's not as important as the Bible, but it's, it's one of those gifts of history. Um, and it, in it, Pilgrim, who is the, the main character or Christian, he's making his way down the narrow path and he's trying to make to the celestial city. It's this allegory of the Christian life. He goes over the hill of difficulty and has all these temptations, but he stays on the narrow road, ends up doubting Castle at one point and finds God's promises, gets back on the trail, and at one point near the end of the book, he, he finds himself in the mountains of delight or the delightful mountains. And this the, these shepherds take this pilgrim, up on top of this high mountain called Clear. And from there they give him a perspective lens out of which the pilgrim looks and off in the distance he can't see it clearly, but off in the distance he sees the celestial city. And that vision of where he's headed sends he and his friend Hopeful off singing songs of praise and strength. And why? Because they see what it is. At least in part. That, brothers and sisters, is, is the hope that doesn't disappoint. So, I don't know. Everybody has different issues in life, but I'll tell you what. If we can manage by the grace of God to raise our eyes up out of the dinginess of the day to see even a glimpse of the glory of tomorrow, then I think it puts everything in perspective. The good and the bad, because that's where we're headed. The glory of God made possible through Jesus Christ and His death, which is why we celebrate Christmas. I hope, I pray, that you will be able to raise your eyes up this evening and tomorrow and know that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, God is doing stuff right now. And to see His work in your life in adversity, to know you're headed someplace awesome, and that hope will never disappoint. Father, that's what we pray for. We pray for the faith. Open the eyes of our faith to see as best as we possibly can off into the distance, off the mountains and see the celestial city, the place where You have promised to dwell with us and within us and before us. Will You, Lord God, increase our hope and allow us the joy that Paul had in adversity and difficult times to recognize You're doing stuff. Will You remind us each day as we get up and we see something else that's negative in the news or something negative in our life, remind us that You are at work. And to trust that and to hope in that and and to know that, that You have as Your great concern for us, not the comfort of life, but to be formed in the image of Jesus. So please, Lord, help us to rejoice in the hope set before us. In Jesus' name, Amen.